Thanks for joining us for this message from Awakened Church. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we pray that you're encouraged by this message. Now lean in as we hear from God's Word together. For anyone who might not know me, my name is AJ, and I'm one of the pastors here at Awaken, and um, I'm excited. This week I have the cool opportunity to serve you guys through teaching God's Word. Again, I, I got to teach last week as well, so I'm excited to continue doing that. And um, hopefully you guys noticed when you walked in today uh, that there was a little cup of juice with a cracker on your seat. If you're not, you're in trouble right now because you definitely sat on it. Um, hopefully you noticed that that was there. Um, but that shows us that, hey, it's communion week. We're going to be taking communion this week. Um, that little um, I guess glass, tiny little cup of juice and the cracker. We're going to be using that later after towards the end of the service. Um, And I was praying about what I should talk about this week. And I found out, oh, we're doing communion this week. And I was praying, okay, Lord, what should I like really talk about? And what the Lord really laid on my heart was, let's just talk about communion. Let's make it very clear what communion actually is, what it's supposed to be. Um, I think it's always good to get a good reminder of what communion is supposed to represent and what it was is created to be. Um, so that's kind of what we're going to be focusing on. And I know depending on where you grew up, potentially in the country just, or in another country, or what denomination of church you might have grown up in or been a part of, or um, who your family is, what you're kind of participating in, your background, um, depending on those different things, that's going to affect what you believe or think about Um, when it comes to communion. So what I wanted to do is get us all very much on the same page, what the Bible says communion is supposed to be. So we're all very clear on it. I know for myself, I grew up in a Baptist church. Um, When I was a little kid, I remember going to service every single week and every so often we would have communion together. And I remember seeing my grandparents and my parents take communion. And this is when I was really little. I remember watching them and I remember thinking immediately just by the way that things were happening, I remember noticing a couple things. I remember noticing this seems important. Seems the way that everyone's taking this. They're pretty serious. I knew and recognized this has to do with Jesus because they're talking a lot about Jesus. So I could make that connection. But other than those couple things, I didn't fully understand it. I really wanted to participate in it, um, but mostly because I thought it was a tiny snack. I was like, I liked grape juice and I thought the cracker looked really good. You, You guys know those little like, strawberry wafers that you you can eat. I thought it was going to taste like that. And so as a little kid, I wanted that. And I remember asking my dad, hey, can I do this too? Can I do take communion as well? And my dad was like, no, not right now. Not right now, bud. You can't do it. And the reason why is because you need to really understand what it means before you can participate with it. So he didn't allow it, but eventually down the line, I would begin to be able to take communion. I came to some understandings about what it was actually supposed to mean. Um, I understood that the bread, when we take that and we break it, that's supposed to be representing Jesus' body in the way that he was beaten, in the way that he was treated very terribly, poorly, the way that he was mocked. He took this, pu- this punishment on himself that he did not deserve. And that's indicative of the fact that we deserve punishment because of the consequences of our sin, but that was laid on Jesus. Um, his blood is represented in the juice, and that Jesus shed his blood on the cross, that's his life, and that his life was shed and it was given for our lives so that we could have life. That's kind of the heart of the two things. I understood that. And I realized, okay, then communion, when we look at those things, what that's supposed to do is supposed to show us the weight of forgiveness when we're taking it. That's what the title of today's message will be, the weight of forgiveness. Now, 
while that understanding that I just gave you guys about what I came to the conclusion of, this is what communion is, that's not wrong. That's right. But actually, that only scratches the surface of what communion is supposed to be, what it's supposed to represent. That's just barely getting to it. And the truth is, the weight of forgiveness gets a whole lot heavier when you understand really what it's tied to and what it's connected to and all the different elements that are going into it um, when we're supposed to be participating in it. So that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to look into this deeper. Um, You guys can start turning to Luke chapter 22. So we're going to jump in first. We're going to read um, verses 14 through 20. Um, and this is where we're jumping in. This is where communion is, is begun. This is where it's like installed for the first time or the concept of it is shared. It's right here where, we, where we'll read. Let's see what it says. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at a table, he and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I, will, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Okay, so where we're we're pausing here. We have to understand what's going on right here if we're going to really grasp the deeper meaning of communion. This is where it's being installed. But the, the thing is, what Jesus is doing right now is very important. It's very specific. Jesus is celebrating Passover with his disciples. This is central to what Jesus is going to be saying. Um, The fact that Jesus is celebrating Passover and he's with the disciples, that's really important because the things that Jesus talks about when he begins to share what communion is, is going to be directly tied to so much of the things that have meaning about Passover. It's very tempting to think when we first read through it, especially living in America in the 21st century, we look at our lives, we know about Jesus. It can be very easy as we read that to just think, oh yeah, pull, he, Jesus is pulling this out of thin air. They're having this feast. He's taking these things. He, he knows what he's about to do. Um, he's going to give his body. He's going to bleed and, and die. So he knows and he's, he's like creating this. But it's so much more than that. Jesus does know that, but Jesus is using this moment specifically because it is at Passover and he's trying to convey deeper meaning. So it's during this celebration that Jesus implements that concept of communion, what we just read right there. Now, Jesus focuses on three things that communion is supposed to be like looking at when we do it. Those three things are his blood, his body, and the new covenant. Those are the three things that communion is focusing on. Now, traditionally, at Passover, at these Passover feasts, these celebrations, Um, they were done with very specific customs and specific language or sayings. Um, It wasn't just like a party, like how we would look at when we meet together with friends and we have a meal together. It's very specific. They had customs about the food. So there was very specific food that they were supposed to eat. Couldn't just be anything. The food had to be cooked a very specific way and it had to be eaten in a very specific order. On top of that, during the Passover meal, there was sayings or, or language that was used. 
different things that were recited at specific points throughout the meal. Um, that was the custom. So whoever was leading the Passover, in this case, Jesus, he's the, the leader of them, he's the one who would be responsible to say the different aspects when it came time to do it in the meal. So that's really important for us to understand because that means what Jesus says is very, very important. Um, as he's saying these things, it holds a lot more weight and gravity than what we can initially grasp on the surface. So for the disciples, as Jesus is talking right here, and he gives this concept of communion, for them, this actually would have been kind of shocking and a little, like very striking to them to hear. It would have maybe almost put them off a little bit because that's not exactly what was supposed to be said. Um, what Jesus says in this moment when he creates this new custom or this new concept of communion, when he says this, it's like very close to what normally would be said with a slight change. So everything that's happening here is directly tied to the meaning of Passover. Communion and Passover go hand in hand. So that means for us, in order to grasp the real importance of communion, you really have to understand the importance and the significance of Passover. If you don't get the two things, you're not going to really understand the the weight behind communion. So that's what we're going to kind of do now. We're going to jump in and we're going to talk about Passover so we can all grasp that and we can know, okay, how does this all connect to what Jesus is saying and what communion is supposed to be? So this idea of what Passover is and and what it's actually celebrating, um, we're going to go through it all, but for you to really understand it, it actually all begins with a promise and a covenant that God made with Abraham. This is the foundation point. This is where the beginning of what would eventually lead to Passover happening starts. Genesis 17 and Genesis chapter 22, both of these chapters talk about a covenant or a promise that God makes to Abraham. And in those, in those chapters, um, the promise is very specific. It's a couple different things. Um, It says that God promises to Abraham that he will make him a father of nations. So Abraham didn't have any kids yet, but he's saying, hey, there's going to be tons of children that are going to come from you, and there's going to be nations that spring from your lineage. That would have been a huge deal for him, especially at this time. That was a huge honor. Um, The other thing is that God promises that he will be an eternal God to them. What he means by that is he's not going to just come in and out at random points and want to be worshiped now and then disappear, but he's going to be with them for eternity. Not just Abraham, but all of his offspring and everybody after that. For all of their lives and even into death and beyond, he is an eternal God. That's part of his promise. Another part is that there would be a land inheritance that would be given to them, a promised land, like a physical land. Abraham was just like a nomadic guy. He didn't have any place. He was just kind of roaming. And same thing, that would sort of be the the result for his offspring for many, many years. They would just kind of be roaming around different areas and staying in different regions, but they didn't possess a land for their own. So God's promise was, hey, I'm going to give you a land of your own. There's this promised future to them. And then the last promise that's given, and this one's very important for, for us specifically, is that God would bless all the nations of the earth through this covenant. And this promise that he gave. That's ultimately alluding to the coming of Jesus. Abraham wouldn't have known that just yet, but that's what it's talking about. The blessing of all nations, that this, this 
earth would be blessed through the lineage of Abraham, through somebody that's going to come from this line. And that's alluding to Jesus. So what happens is Abraham gets this covenant, this promise. Fast forward many, many years. We're getting to kind of where Passover comes from and some of the deeper elements. Um, Abraham would have kids. Those kids would roam around. They'd live in different spaces. Eventually, there's a lot of things that happen, but they find themselves in Egypt. And over a few generations in Egypt, they find themselves enslaved in Egypt. Now, they're still, that's not their land, but they're in Egypt. And as they're under slavery here, things get very bad for them. Things get really hard. They start getting restrictions on the children that they can have. We've talked about this just recently. Um, They get a lot of um, burden on them for the tasks that they're required to do. They're being treated very poorly. It's very hard. And the people of Israel or the Jewish people are starting to like cry about this or, or not like literally cry, but they're crying out to God about it. So this is kind of where things start to kick off for where Passover comes from. So we're going to start here reading Exodus chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. It says, Moreover, this is God speaking, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. See, there's that covenant that we talked about earlier. This is what's kicking off the the need for what God's about to do, the the point that he has that covenant. That's why he's doing this. It says, So say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And I will take you to be my people." And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Okay. Now, what we saw is that that original covenant that I I talked to you guys about that started in Genesis with Abraham, that covenant that God made spurs God on to begin to move again. It had been a long time. Obviously, the, Egyptian, or the Israelites are under slavery to the Egyptians. They're struggling. God sees this. It's not that he remembered as though he forgot. More so, it means that he's ready to act again. It's saying, like, it's time for me to continue what I said I was going to be doing. So God begins to do some stuff. And what God says is he winds up making these um, several I will statements. You might have noticed as we read right there, God says, I will do this and I will do this and I will do that. Those statements are very important. Um, what God is doing right there is he's telling the people what is going to take place very shortly. He's like preparing their hearts and minds for what's about to happen. And he's basing all of this on that covenant that he made. That's the reason for doing it. So what he tells them he's going to do is pretty important when we look at those statements. He says, first, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from them. What he means by that, the the I will statement, what he's alluding to is that they are no longer going to suffer under the affliction of slavery. So the fact that they were slaves is bad enough, but what they were experiencing under that was extremely harsh and terrible. And God's saying, the burdens that you feel, the afflictions that you are facing, the things that you are suffering because of your slavery, you won't have to go through this anymore. I'm going to end that. And then God makes another I will statement. He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. 
What that's pointing to is the fact that the people of Israel, soon hereafter, God says this, will no longer belong to the Egyptians. It's not just that they won't suffer anymore, but it's also they're going to be free. They're not going to be slaves any longer. God's making that statement. They're going to be redeemed. There's going to be redemption for them. And then the third thing he says is, I will take you to be my people. When God says that part, he's alluding to a promised future, saying these are the things you guys can expect to happen in what I'm about to do and what's about to take place in your guys' lives. And again, all of this, these promises, these I will statements, they are being made as a direct result of that covenant that God had made. Okay, so we will kind of continue on. We don't have the time to read um, all the chapters of Exodus from rest of chapter 6 through 11. I'll kind of summarize it for us, though. Um, what takes place in between all of this time is a bunch of crazy stuff. Moses um, talks to God. He gets a group of people that are supporting him. He goes, he speaks to Pharaoh. He talks to Pharaoh about being, um, letting the people of Israel go. Pharaoh is resistant. He doesn't want to do that. So God says, okay, I'm going to begin to do these plagues. And you begin to see these crazy plagues. And after each one, Moses goes back and talks to Pharaoh and Pharaoh refuses again. And then another plague happens. Nine of these plagues. And then there's, there's a whole bunch of them. We know several of them. We can think of them. The river turning to blood, the Nile River, the frogs, the locusts, the sores, the gnats. There's all these different things that happen. Okay. At no point does Pharaoh say that he's willing to relent. And that leads to this final 10th plague that's going to take place. And this is the worst and heaviest one. This 10th plague that's about to happen is going to be a plague of judgment and a plague of death. Um, God says, I'm going to send an angel of death that's going to go over all of Egypt. And every firstborn male child is going to die. But God doesn't just leave everybody in this. He gives them a way out so they don't have to face this judgment. And the way he does that is by giving them a set of things that they need to do in order to be saved. And that's where um, kind of the, the implementation of what would become Passover comes from. And it stems around what's called a Passover lamb. Um, everything, and if you didn't want to be judged, it would require you to participate with this Passover lamb. That's what we're going to read about right now in Exodus 12. Now, like I just mentioned, that covenant part is really important for what we're going to talk about with communion later in the new covenant. What we're going to talk about here is going to relate to Jesus and his body and his blood and how Jesus is representing many things like this lamb. So kind of keep that in mind as we read. Uh, we're going to read uh, all of the verses together, um, starting in verse 3 all the way through 14. And then I'm going to kind of go back and step-by-step step, talk about how this connects to Jesus. So it says, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. And your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. 
And then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that does remain until morning, you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Okay. Now there's so many things here that point to Jesus, that allude to him, and so many things that ultimately connect to communion, like what we're going to talk about here shortly. So I kind of want to go through this, everything that we just read there, and talk about, okay, how do these things point and show us the heart of Jesus in and through communion. So this is a Passover lamb, and they had to take this Passover lamb and do a whole bunch of things. And with, I want you guys to just kind of realize this as we begin to go through it. Jesus is your Passover lamb. He's your Passover lamb, okay? So let's go back through and look at all the things. I'll kind of make sense of what took place through these verses and show you how all these things have parallels, okay? So Verses three and four talked about what they had to do when they took the lamb in. They took it in on the 10th day and they held it until the 14th day. Now, this is very interesting. They literally had the lamb live with them, like in their house. It would be in their home for this period of four days. You know what that means? Your kids, the family, they would become very well acquainted with the lamb. They would know the lamb well. It was their lamb. It wasn't distant. It wasn't the neighbor's lamb. It wasn't far off. This sacrifice was theirs. What does that show us with Jesus? Jesus, our Passover lamb, needs to be well acquainted with us. You don't get to have him be your Passover lamb if he's not associated with you. If you don't know him and he doesn't know you, you have to live with him. That's what is being alluded to here. Then verses five and six Um, it talked about the requirements for this lamb. It had to be blemishless or spotless or have no defects. Um, That shows that it was pure. It was perfect. Likewise, Jesus is our Passover lamb because he is perfect. He is pure. He is blemishless. There is no sin in him whatsoever. That allows him to be this Passover lamb. And then what it said is that on the 14th day, this known lamb that had lived with them was to be killed by the head of the household. Likely they would have slit the lamb's throat. That seems pretty heavy. That's because it is heavy, because it was to be personal. In the same way, Jesus, our Passover lamb, we have to recognize that his death is because of us personally. We personally put him on that cross because of our sin. So it's a personal thing. 
Then it goes on and talks about what they're to do with the blood in verse 7. It says that they're to take that blood after it's been taken from the lamb, and they're supposed to put it all over the doorposts of the house, rub it on the, the, the side of the doors and over the top. And what that is showing us is that blood represents life. It was the life of that lamb. It's been taken. It's now being put on the external part of the house, on the doorway, that anything that passed through that door has accepted that anybody inside of this is believing in that blood to be doing something. And that blood is showing that ultimately that that's lamb, that lamb's life was paid for the people that that blood is covering. Now what that shows us for Jesus is that his blood should be something that people, obviously not physically, they can see us covered in blood, but Jesus' blood that has covered us should be something that's visible to people on the outside, that they can see our faith, what it is that we believe, that his blood changes us, that it stains us and makes us different. That's part of the work of the Passover lamb. Okay, now things get a little bit more interesting. In verse 8 and uh, 8 through 10, it talked about what they were to do with the lamb after they had put the blood on the doors. They're supposed to eat it, but they had to cook it a certain way that was, the, the way they had to cook it was intentional because it was the way to make sure there was no more blood within it. Um, and then they, they had to eat the lamb and they couldn't leave anything on the plate or anything remaining. What that shows us is that that lamb, for everyone who participated, had to be internalized. Wasn't enough just to know about it. It had to be internalized, literally physically taken in and internalized. That shows us for ourselves Jesus can't just be an external God to you. He has to be internalized as well. If he is to be your Passover lamb, you have to internalize what he's called you to and what he's said for your your life. You have to internalize that. And then what it goes on to say is after they're done eating, if there's anything remaining, it has to be burned. What that's showing is that, hey, there's a finite timeline on how long you can participate in this Passover situation. It's not going to go on forever. If you want to participate, it starts on this day. It ends on this day. Afterward, it's over. There is no more option to, oh, you know what? I think actually I'm going to participate. I'm going to go ahead and eat the lamb, and I think I'll I'll, I'll go ahead and opt in. It doesn't work like that. What that shows us, the way that parallels to Jesus as our Passover lamb is the time to accept him is finite. doesn't go on forever. The opportunity to follow him is set for a window, and that window is right now. Now, we don't know exactly when the window is going to shut, but we know that it could come at any moment. So for ourselves and for the people that are around us and that we know who need this Passover lamb, there should be an urgency to get this news to them about Jesus. If he is our Passover lamb, okay? Moving on, verse 11, it talked about uh, what the people were supposed to do after they had eaten the lamb. It said that they were supposed to uh, put their belt on, tighten it, their sandals were to be strapped on their feet, they had their staff, they were already packed. Um, What that is showing is God is saying, hey, after you've done all of this stuff, you need to be ready to go. Because after this is over, your time to leave is going to be very rapid. You need to be ready to get out when I tell you. So the people ought to be prepared. How does that connect to Jesus, our Passover lamb? 
we should live constantly in a state of readiness to move. When God calls us to either act here on this earth, to move to another place, to continue to act in faith, we need to be ready. Ultimately, it also alludes to the fact that we need to be ready and prepared with eternity on our mind at all times, not living for things that are happening right now, making that the focus of our life, but recognizing that, no, God has called us to something so much deeper and so much more vast than just this small time period right now. He's called us to eternity, so we need to be ready to move at a moment's notice or to be ready to be taken at a moment's notice. That's what this is showing us. Okay, then in verse 12, 12 and 13, um, it said something interesting. God, this is where he says, anybody who participates in this, anybody who has put that blood on their door, who's covered by this blood, I'm gonna come over Egypt and anybody who I see that has the blood on the door, I will pass over and I will not judge them. They're gonna be saved. What that shows us in the parallel to Jesus here, is that those people, as this moment was happening, just kind of put yourselves in, the, in, in their shoes for a moment. You just rubbed a bunch of blood on a doorway, okay? You're sitting in your house now. You're not actually doing anything, but you know that judgment's about to take place. Potentially, you're hearing in other places crying and wailing and weeping as people are being judged. You're placing faith in that blood. You're not actually doing anything. You, you did do something in accepting this command that you need to take this Passover lamb seriously, but you're still walking in faith right now. In the same way, Jesus, as our Passover lamb, we have to live in a state of constant faith, believing that we will be passed over in judgment because of Jesus being our Passover lamb, because of his blood because he gave his body and because he gave his blood for us. That's an act of faith. Then finally in verse 14, God literally gives the command to celebrate Passover every year. Um, He says, you're going to do this um, yearly and this is going to be a statue to you forever. What that shows us is that Passover was meant to be a recurring reminder of God's saving work. He wanted the people to constantly be looking back at that moment and remembering, oh, this is the God that we serve. The God of this covenant that he kept with us, the God who saved us through this Passover lamb. We're looking back on this moment and they were to remember it regularly. So kind of talked about the covenant a little bit. I didn't get too deep into that. Talked about the Passover lamb and how it has parallels. So what does all this have to do with communion? That's what this is actually about. That's what the message is supposed to be focusing on today. Well, let's go ahead and fast forward. Jesus is sitting there at Passover in what we read originally in Luke chapter 22. Jesus is sitting there at the Passover feast with his disciples celebrating all these things that we just talked about. Those I will statements that God had made the covenant that it's all based on. They're celebrating the incredible move of God. They're eating a Passover lamb at this moment. And Jesus, while sitting there, seeing all these parallels himself, knowing what he's about to do, recognizing that he is a new kind of Passover lamb and that Jesus is bringing a new kind of covenant 
with them, a new aspect of it, he begins to say those things about, hey, this is going to be something you guys are going to do going forward. Okay? And this is where we're basically at the end of the message here. Point one, there's only two points in this. Point one is Jesus has come to sanctify, redeem, and offer a future. Jesus has come to sanctify, redeem, and offer a future. Jesus knew this when he's at this Passover moment as he's giving communion. So you remember those I will statements that we read? I know we didn't spend too much time on it, but we read those statements that God had made to Moses, but was supposed to be relayed to the Israelites where God said, I'm going to do all these things. And then he did accomplish those things. Those are central to celebrating Passover. Jesus does so many things in responding with saying, hey, this is a new covenant I give you. It's tied in, this, in very same parallel ways. So I kind of want to explain that. Um, Passover, even though it was about a physical freedom, Jesus is saying, hey, this, this new Passover lamb, myself, is about a spiritual freedom. And that's what the new covenant is coming from. And it's not new in that it's like completely different. It's new in that it's a new aspect of what the covenant already was. Okay, so Jesus came to sanctify us. Okay, that means to set us apart. That sin, the effects, the affliction of sin would no longer be in our life. Jesus came to set us aside from that, to sanctify us. That's part of the new covenant. Jesus came to redeem us from slavery, not from physical slavery, from spiritual slavery to sin. He's our redeemer. And Jesus came to promise us a future. Not a future in regards to physical land, but a future in regards to a spiritual home, an eternal home with him in heaven. So the new covenant is based very much, and it comes from the thought process of the old covenant, but it's just a new aspect of it that God, through Jesus and what he was about to do, is going to instill. Now, that new covenant is directly related to what he's come to do for us. And the things that we read through Exodus 12 and how the Passover lamb relates, those are supposed to be things as we look at communion that we're reminded of. When we think about his blood, when we think about his body, we're supposed to think about the Passover lamb and all the things that took place there. So like I said, this is not just about, oh, Jesus was suffering on the cross. He was beaten and injured significantly. Consequences I should have taken. His blood is his life to give me life. Again, those are true, but it's so much deeper than that. So communion, when we take communion together, is pointing back and looking at all of this stuff together. This is what Jesus had in mind as he was speaking those commands. So let's go ahead and read that chunk that we read in Luke one last time with all of this in our minds. Luke 22, verses 14 through 20. It says, And then when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. 
For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is trying to get the disciples to see, hey, I am your Passover lamb. Communion is the new variation for you to continue to celebrate of Passover. That's a really big deal for us to understand. Jesus is establishing for future followers a recurring reminder, just like Passover was supposed to be for the Jews all those years earlier. Communion is our recurring reminder as we look back. This is our last point. It's going to come from understanding all of this. Communion should remind and remotivate us. Again, as we take communion together, when we understand all the different things that Jesus is staking communion on and what it's all connected to, and we see all the parallels, we start to really think through those things. That really makes this powerful. It's a lot deeper than we originally anticipate or think. Now, communion should remind us of how Jesus is our Passover lamb. It should remind us of his body and his blood, but not just for the sake of what he did on the cross and as he went to the cross, but because of the parallels we see through Passover. That's what Jesus was trying to connect the dots for us with in starting it there. Um, Communion, not only should it just be a reminder of what Jesus did and that new covenant, those promises that, hey, I'm going to sanctify and redeem and give you a future, but it should be a reminder how we are called to live, that his body was given so that we might be free from sin and slavery and have that future, but it would also re-motivate us to live in this constant state of readiness. When we take communion, it should be kind of a little bit of a gut punch, not in a bad way, but in a remembering, oh man, this is what I claimed I'm living for. That readiness that we're supposed to have, it should be a reminder and a re-motivator for us. So I need to live this out. That's what communion is supposed to be for us. Communion is this vivid reminder in this vivid moment that we're supposed to take together to really understand the weight of forgiveness. It's so much heavier than what we typically think. Now, we're about to close our service out right now, and we're going to close with a song of worship. And as we're worshiping together, I'm not going to lead you guys through each of the the aspects of it, because what I want you guys to do is take those cups that were on your seats, and as you are singing this last song of worship, you can open that up, the cracker and, and the, the juice, and take that as you want. But I want you to prayerfully do that. Take it as you think of, how is Jesus your Passover lamb? What does communion really mean? Do you need to be remotivated? Think about those things as you are in this, this last song of worship as we're, as we're taking this together. And one more thing that I want to remind you guys of is communion. The same way that my dad told me, hey, don't take this unless you understand what it means. He didn't just mean a mental understanding. He meant a heart understanding. If you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus, 
You haven't accepted Jesus as your Passover lamb, as the one who's forgiving your sin and allowing you to be not judged because of your sin. If you haven't accepted that, what I want you to do during this last song, the Lord's stirring your heart. I just want you to exit your row and find your way to the back. There's going to be some pastors at the back of the room and some next steps counselors back there um, who can talk to you about taking that first step of faith. So wherever you are, as we're singing this last song, I just want you to really pray through what the Lord would have you do and what he would have you focus on. Now, again, I just encourage you guys to, to really take this to heart because I know for me, the weight of forgiveness and what it ties in communion is so beautiful and so special. Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We'd love to hear how this message or the ministry of Awaken has impacted your life. Let us know at awaken.church forward slash my story.